The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Radio with the switch of a dial. Radio brings you tragedy, comedy, entertainment, information, education, a whole world at your command. Here he is. In the movie Wake Island, he was the Brooklyn Marine. In the broad with two yanks, he's Biff the private. But tonight, he's just an overgrown kid anxiously waiting for Halloween. I'll never forget. When I was just a boy, every Halloween, my father used to stick me in the front window. We were too poor to buy a pumpkin. (laughs) (laughs) The American Meat Institute presents William Bendix in The Life of Riley. The meat people of America, providing a great food for a great nation. If you put all of America's meat retailers together in one city, it would make another city as big as Indianapolis. There are more than 400,000 meat retailers in this country. Another important link in the chain that gives you good, fresh meat every day, America. And now, on behalf of all those engaged in supplying meat to the nation, the American Meat Institute presents The Life of Riley with William Bendix as Riley. By day, Riley is engaged in the serious business of war production as a riveter in a California aircraft plant. But tonight we see his less serious side. It's two nights before Halloween, and Riley is full of the spirit of the thing. It's quite dark out, and Riley's son, Junior, is just returning from a meeting of the young Wildcats, his club, in a very thoughtful mood. <gasps> is, is that you, Pop? Shh. Yeah, Junior. What are you doing hiding on the back porch? Listen, peek in the kitchen window and see what your mother's doing. She's washing the supper dishes. Say, Pop, what yeah. are you doing with that false face on? You're Mickey Mouse, huh? No, I'm not Mickey Mouse. I'm the rat man of Blood Bucket Castle. 
<laughs> oh, at the dime store, they sell those false faces for Mickey Mouse. Never mind. I bet your mother will think I'm the rat man. Oh, you gonna play a trick on Mom? Yeah. You see, last night we saw a horror picture about a nice, gruesome character, the rat man. He was a vampire. Has lunch on people's necks. <laughs> oh, he ain't a rat. He's a bat. Oh, well, he's very depressing. Anyway... <laughs> Afterwards, your mom was so scared something would pop out of a doorway at her, she walked all the way home in the middle of the street. <laughs> mom said you made her walk out there. No, I... <laughs> I just invited her out in the street because it ain't polite to leave a lady walking on a sidewalk all alone. <laughs> you watch now when I scratch at the door and she opens it up and sees me in this thing. <laughs> okay, Pop, go ahead. Okay, all I hope is she don't faint. <laughs> watch now. Don't growl, they squeak. Oh, yeah, that's right. Shh. Who's there? We got her guessing. <laughs> well, I never. It's Mickey Mouse. <laughs> Junior. Junior, go get your father some cheese. Ha-ha! You sure fooled her, Pop. Yeah. Well, they don't make these masks as good as they used to. Or else maybe I got a very strong personality and it leaks through, probably. <laughs> well, isn't it a little early for Halloween tricks, Riley? Well, it don't hurt to get a head start. Halloween's my favorite holiday. Look, Junior, there's something else I bought at the Five and Dime. You see this book? Ghost Stories. Well, well thanks, Pop, but I don't want to read any ghost stories tonight. What's the matter? You don't believe in ghosts, do you? No, I don't believe in ghosts, but I don't want to read anything that might change my mind. <laughs> Too many people think there's ghosts now. Hey, Dumper, what's the matter with him? Well, I don't know. Ever since he came home from school today, he's been asking me if I believe in haunted houses. <laughs> what a question. With the house in shortage, as sure as it is, who's going to leave a house empty for spooks? <laughs> well, there's one empty house up on Chestnut Hill, Riley. You know, the old Sherwin place. Oh. Some people say that's haunted. Yes? Mrs. Cornwell claims she saw a pale white face at the window, too. Yes? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, but Mrs. Cornwell's a great one for ghosts. She's always holding seances and things like that. Yeah, yeah, that, that Cornwell kid's in Junior's club, too. I bet he's got our boy believing in ghosts. Well, I'm going to have a head-to-head -head talk with Junior. <laughs> You see, Junior, if I tell you there's no ghost, you can take my word for it. After all, I've been your father for 13 years, ain't I? Oh, sure, Pop. Uh, but if there aren't any ghosts, what haunts haunted houses? Listen, Junior, nothing haunts haunted houses. Oh, yes, they do, Pop. Johnny Cornwall's mother proved the house was haunted. How did she? She said she saw a ghost face in the window uh, up at the old Sherwin house. It was a horrible face, too. Darwin, Mrs. Cornwell must have seen her own reflection. <laughs> There's a dame should walk into a room backwards and break her face to you slowly. <laughs> oh, then, Pop, then she came home and held a seance. She asked if what she saw was the ghost of Alice Sherwin, and she got three raps on the table. Oh, that means yes in ghost language. <laughs> Fine language. All they can do is knock. 
They ought to be newspaper columnists. <laughs> you better not make fun of ghosts, Pop. Look, Junior, would you sooner believe a ghost than your old man? No, Pop. Uh, but if the ghost said it was a ghost, it ought to know. Okay, I can see you're a septic. <laughs> now, we'll have a see It's right here to prove what Mrs. Cornwell saw wasn't that Sherwin girl's ghost. Come on, put your hands up on his table. Come on. Oh, gosh, Papa, are you going to ask a ghost to rap? I'll show you. I'll put my hands on there, too, see? Okay, now I'll ask something. Are there any ghosts? See? No answer. No ghosts. Nah, Pop. You have to ask for raps. Two means no. Three raps means yes. Oh, well, okay. Two raps for no, three for yes. Now I'll ask him again. Did uh, Mrs. Cornwell see a ghost up at Sherwin's old haunted house? Gosh, Pop, it said no. You see, that proves it. Mrs. Cornwell's a phony. <laughs> well, um, ask him again if there are any ghosts. Okay. Are there any ghosts? Rap two for no. See, that's the ghosts themselves say there aren't any ghosts. That proves it. Wait a minute, Pop. Uh, How could a ghost rap two for no if there aren't any ghosts? Well, that's very simple. The, uh... <laughs> I was just kidding, Sonny. I did that rapping myself. <laughs> Honest. Well, your hands were on the table. Yeah, but my feet weren't. Look at I just kicked up under that table with my foot like this. Oh, Pop, I bet you wouldn't kid around like that in a genuine haunted house like the Sherwin place. Well, sure I would, only I can't because I ain't going there. Would you be scared to go if you were going? Me? No. Oh, that's good, Pop. No, I ain't scared to go neither. How do you mean? Well, down at my club tonight, we got to talking what we'd do Halloween. So we made it up we'd go find out if Sherwin's old house was haunted or if it wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> I pity any ghosts when them young wildcats get in that house. <laughs> We ain't all going inside, Pop. Just one of us got elected to go inside. Oh. The poor guy who got the short straw. <laughs> who got it? Well, I did. I see. Well, well, Junior, you show him you know there aren't any ghosts in there. I'm proud of you, Junior, walking in there all alone. I think that's Well, a... I won't be all alone. I made up a rule the fellow who had to go in could take in another fella, his best friend. Well, that's okay, too. If the guy you picked is a real friend, he'll go like a shot. Who'd you pick? I picked you, Pop. <laughs> well, I bet that... Uh, uh, me. Uh, look, Junior, I'm, I'm probably going to be very busy and... Pop! Besides, I... You ain't scared to go, are you? Well, no, but... The... And you are my best friend, aren't you? Huh? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess I am. Actually, the, the saying is that your mother is your best friend. <laughs> well, I couldn't ask Mom to go. I'm sure glad you're coming with me. Yeah, me too, Junior. As Lord Twitcher stood there in the dark hall of the great lonely house, he could feel something evil in the very air. A cold wind brushed his cheek, 
and an icy hand seemed to touch his spine. Suddenly, he saw the thing. And then he heard a sound. A low, wailing sound. <laughs> Who's that? Well, it's only me, dear. Did I startle you? Oh, uh, no. <laughs> no, I was just reading this book here. <laughs> oh, the ghost stories you bought Junior, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Such nonsense. <laughs> It's a quiet Halloween, isn't it? Yes. wonder what all those boys in Junior's club are doing tonight. I know what they're doing. They're all sitting over across from our house right now on the fence, like a row of buzzards waiting for us to come out. <laughs> oh, are they going to the house with you? Well, they're going as far as the gate of the place to make sure we go in. Oh, but you're not nervous about going, are you, dear? You don't believe in ghosts? Well, no. You don't believe in them either, do, do, do you, Peg? No. But uh, there is something queer about that house. Huh? I wonder what did become of that poor Alice Sherwin. Well, if nobody knows, I don't want to find out. <laughs> what did they say happened to her? Oh, it's an awfully sad story. She was a bride, you know, beautiful girl. Well, they were on their honeymoon in Manila. He was a captain in the Navy. She and her husband were going to come home and live in that old house. Then, well, he was lost in an air raid. Some say they were both killed together. Others say that she followed him because she didn't want to live without him. Well, anyhow, the house stands there empty, waiting for the bride and bridegroom that never came to live in it. People ought to leave the place alone. And I'm one of the people. <laughs> go there tonight, maybe people will stop talking and gossiping about the house, because you'll prove there's nothing there. Yeah, maybe. And what was all that talk about seeing lights and faces around the place? Oh, just talk, I suppose. Yeah. But they do say that they saw a woman's figure at the window in the attic. Pop! Uh, <laughs> Junior! What's the idea of sneaking in like that? It's time to go, Pop. I... Huh? <laughs> oh. Well, yeah, it's a... Well, okay, Junior. Goodbye, Dumplin'. Goodbye, boy. Sure dark out, isn't it, Pop? Yeah. Pop? Huh? That Sherwin house we're going to, it... It can't be really haunted, can it? No, no. But it's funny that people have seen a ghost in there. Yeah, well, look, Junior, when we get in that house, you, you do just like I do, and you won't see no ghosts. Oh. <laughs> what are you going to do, Pop? I'm going to keep my eyes shut. <laughs> Well, not even nervous Riley has any idea of what's in store for him as he and Junior head for the mysterious old Sherwin place. We'll rejoin them in just a moment. Right now, this is Ken Niles speaking for meat. The other day in a meat market, Mrs. Niles overheard a woman say, Joe, I hear all this talk about braising meat, but just what meats do you braise? Well, Joe the meat man told her, of course, and out of that comes this excellent thought. Maybe some of you would like a little review of the braising cuts of beef. 
Well, in the first place, braising is an ideal way of preparing the lean, point-free beef coming on the markets these days in order to bring out all its fine flavor and tenderness. And here are the favorite braising cuts. Popular pot roast, juicy Swiss steak, tasty flank chops, easily cooked short ribs, country fried steaks, and... Oh, but why go on? My mouth is watering so much I can hardly talk now. But remember, braising is long cooking over low heat. And that's the way to good gravy, too. After all, whether you braise, roast, or broil meat, you are getting essential, highest-quality proteins for which meat is nutritionally noted. Meat is a yardstick of protein foods because meat measures up to every protein need. And now back to the life of Riley with William Bendix as Riley. It's just midnight, a very dark midnight. Even the moon is hiding on this Halloween. Riley and his son, Junior, are just approaching the rusty iron gate that guards the old Sherwin house, which is said to be haunted. Listen. There's the gate, Pop. Let's go in. Uh, maybe the gate's locked so we can't get in. <laughs> Gee, wouldn't that be too bad? <laughs> We've got to get in, Pop. The gang's followed us all the way from town, and they're still watching. Uh, yeah, they trail us like sharks after a sinking ship. Let's go in, Pop. Okay. What's that? The gate. The the hinges are all rusty. Maybe we ought to go back to town and get some oil, huh? (laughs) Come on in the garden, Pop. Gosh, it's dark. Yeah. Well, follow me, Junior. Where are you? Right behind you. (laughs) Here. Give me your hand. I see the house, Pop. The moon's coming out of a cloud. Yeah. Junior. Huh? What's that over there? Huh? Uh, I think that's your shadow, Pop. (laughs) If that's my shadow, why is it moving while I'm standing still? (laughs) Pop, it's coming this way. And since when does a shadow make footsteps? Good evening, Riley. Oh, wait, Pop. It's your friend, Mr. O'Dell, the undertaker. I right, do. Oh. oh, oh, yeah. Oh, how are you, Digger? I never thought I'd be glad to... Never thought I'd be glad to see an undertaker. You're looking fine, Riley. Very natural. <laughs> Tell me, what are you doing here around the old Sherwin house? Oh, uh, well, nothing, Digger. We're just having some fun on Halloween. Ah, Halloween. I adore Halloween. It's so gay. (laughs) Digger, do, do you hang around this old house much? Oh, yes, indeed. It's one of my favorite haunts. Horse, listen, you don't think there's anything in there, do you? Who knows? Sometimes as I stroll through this old garden, I feel unseen eyes follow me. You do, huh? (laughs) Riley, you're not going inside the house. Well, we thought we might drop in a minute. I could be talked out of it. (laughs) 
Take my advice, Riley. Remain outside. Enjoy the beautiful flowers. They're my favorite flowers. Lilies. <laughs> Digger, when you talk about lilies, please don't stare at my chest. <laughs> Strange how some people have no interest in horticulture. In my profession, we have a saying. You may not like flowers at first, but eventually they grow on you. <laughs> By the way, Riley, how tall are you? Well, I'm about five feet. Uh, uh, why? I'd like to borrow your overcoat Saturday to wear at the football game. Oh, sure, sure. I'll pick it up at one o'clock. Uh, I want to get to the game before they kick off. the door to the house, Pop. It's open. Well, leave it open. Why? Uh, huh? One thing, Junior, nobody will never be able to say your old man was a coward. Let's go in. Now let's go out. <laughs> Wait, Pop. We've only been in one room. We're supposed to go through the whole house. As far as I'm concerned, this is a one-room house. Come on. <laughs> Wait, Pop. What for? I... I told the kids you didn't believe in ghosts, and, and I said we'd have another seance like we did at home. Junior, a blood relationship can only be stretched so far. <laughs> oh, Pop, you, you said you'd do it in a haunted house, and, and if we didn't hear anything, it would prove there wasn't any you-know around here. I already proved there wasn't any you-know around here. <laughs> well, you didn't do it right. Well, I... I found out for a seance... The medium has to be tied in a chair so it can't pull no tricks. Well, okay, Junior. I'd be glad to let you tie me up. Only there ain't no rope. <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> I brought some rope, Pop. That was swell of you, Junior. I'll remember this. Go ahead, tie me. <laughs> Can you move your hands or feet? No, you tied me so tight, Dan Green is sitting in. <laughs> now, stand over by the window where I can see you. Well, here I am, Pop. Ah, you'll see, Junior. There won't be any raps this time. Hope you're right, Pop. Of course I'm right. How can there be any raps when I'm tied up too tight to rap? And I also got my eye on you. Well, go ahead, then. Ask if there's any ghosts here. Okay, now. If there's any ghosts here, rap two times. If there ain't, don't bother. <laughs> Ooh, no raps. Oh, now say, if there are any ghosts, to rap three times. Well, okay, but there won't be any. If there are any ghosts, rap three times. <laughs> Junior, did, did you do that? Uh, I didn't. Didn't you? Frankly, no. <laughs> Junior, 
Where are you going? Out the window. Come on. Don't come back. Untie me, Junior. I can't get this chair through that window. Junior. Oh, but Pop. Mom. Pop, I can't get the nuts loose. Well, try... I better go get a knife. Well, Junior, don't... Don't... don't forget to come back. I had to open my big mouth for wraps, and I got wraps. Fine thing, all alone in a house with a... Uh, what's that? Who, who, who's that? What are you doing in my house? I, I must be going crazy. Why did you come here? I, I wouldn't stay, lady, only I got tied up. <laughs> I will loosen the knots. Yep. Well, thanks. Who, who are you? I am Alice Sherwin. Now I know I'm crazy. I'm talking to a ghost. Pop, I'm coming. Oh, Judy. Please, don't tell anyone I'm here. I, I only want to be left alone here in my house. I got a knife and... Pop, you're untied. Yeah. And it was the ghost that done it. Wait a minute. Her hands. They weren't no ghost's hands. Junior, you go outside and wait for me. What are you going to do, Pop? I'm going to have another talk with that, that lady ghost. Why did you want to see me, Mr. Riley? Well, when I, when I figured out she wasn't a ghost, I... Got to thinking how lonesome you must be in this house all alone. So I thought maybe you'd like to take a stroll over to my house and meet my family. Oh, thank you, but oh, I... If, if you'd rather not talk, I'll go away. No, don't go yet. I mustn't be rude to my first guest in so long. Oh, thanks. Must be kind of a shock when the first man you see in so long looks like I do. <laughs> Tell me about your family, Mr. Riley. Well, my my family's named Riley after me. <laughs> Very nice people, too. That was my son, Junior, that was with me tonight. It must be wonderful to have a son. Oh, it's great. I got a daughter, too. A girl. <laughs> she's, she's 16 now. The boy's 13, but... Getting older all the time. <laughs> then there's, there's, there's Peg, that's my wife. She's older than the kids, but younger than me. <laughs> Say, in that picture of you over the fireplace, I guess that fellow with you, that's your husband. Huh? Yes. That's Robert. He's a good-looking fellow. Maybe you'd rather not talk about him, though. Silence won't bring him back. My wife told me about what what happened. Of course, she didn't know the part about your being here. I don't want anyone to know. I want to stay here, alone, with his memory. It's the least I can do in loyalty to him. Oh. You mean you, you think that's what he'd want you to do? Of course. Does that surprise you? Well... Yes, ma'am, it does. 
I didn't know him, but from his picture there, I know he was a swell guy. I wouldn't think he'd want you locked up here, throwing the rest of your life away. Do you think any man wants the wife he loved to forget him in, in a year or ever? Well, no, but there's, there's different ways of remembering. I don't understand. You, you can make his dying count for something by helping to beat the people who started this war and teaching the world that it won't pay to ever start another. You think that I could help end this war? Sure. Everybody can do something. The only thing a person can't do is is do nothing. Oh, I... I guess you think I've been... Very selfish, Mr. Riley. Oh, no. No, you've been shut up in this empty house. You just didn't know what was going on. The people I can't understand are the ones who do know and still don't care. Those people live in something worse than an empty house. They live in an empty brain. Well, I'm not one of them, Mr. Riley. You... You've given me something to think about. And I'm very grateful. Oh, well... Gee, that's fine. <laughs> Well, I guess I'll be going. I'm sure glad you ain't no ghost. Of course, I ain't actually scared of ghosts because I know there ain't no ghosts. Are there? <laughs> of course not. But, you know, Mrs. Sherwin, it, it is kind of dark out in that garden, isn't it? Would you mind walking me to the gate? <laughs> We'll be back in a moment. Well, I think we can all agree with Riley that none of us here at home can sit this war out. The war isn't over in Europe, the war isn't over in the South Pacific, and the war isn't over in America's kitchens. You women who have signed up for the duration to keep health-giving meals on America's tables just can't pick out the meat you want and be sure of getting it every time these days. The needs of war are bound to make the varieties and quantities your meat man has vary from day to day. So let's all make good meals out of whatever meats are on hand. And remember this, all meats, regardless of cut or kind, have the same complete, highest quality, good-eating proteins that make meat a yardstick of protein foods. This statement and all statements regarding the nutritional value of meat made on this program are accepted by the Council on Foods and Nutrition of the American Medical Association. Hiya, Dumplin'. Hey, I, I got some big news about Halloween. Yes? Well, you, you, you know, I, I think I'm going to open up a one-man recruiting outfit. I'm going to recruit waves, wax, spars, and spooks. <laughs> Tune in The Knife of Riley, starring William Bendix, next week at this time. This is Ken Nile saying, see you next week. This is the Blue Network. 7.30 KECA, Los Angeles. What time is it? 
It's time for the Abbott and Costello Show. We're on the air for ABC here in Hollywood. Well, what are we waiting for? Let's go with the Abbott and Costello Show. Show, produced and transcribed in Hollywood tonight for your listening pleasure with Susan Miller and the music of Maddie Malley. Hold on to your chairs, folks, for here they are, Bud Abbott and Luke Costello. Costello, Costello, you're late again. Well, I was watching the girls admiring Lana Turner's new necklace. Lana Turner has a new le- necklace? Yes, made out of her old wedding rings. <laughs> hey, who was that girl you were out with last night? Oh, that's my, that's my new girl. What's she like, Lou? What's she like? She likes bourbon, scotch, gin, rye, wine, scotch, <laughs> bourbon. Look, where, where did you meet this girl? Oh, at the Palladium. I asked her for a dance. Did you dance in the Foxtrot, the Tango, or the Waltz? The One Step. The One Step? One step and I changed my mind about dancing with her. <laughs> Why, wasn't she a good dancer? No, but she makes you forget about dancing during intermission. <whistles> when I took her home, I kissed her goodnight and got a real kick out of it. Uh, she kisses that good? No, her father caught us. Right. <laughs> Instead of running around every night with a different girl, why don't you settle down and get married? Not me, Abbott. Getting married is like going to a cafeteria. Like a cafeteria? Yeah, you grab what you want and pay for it later. <laughs> sheriff, and I'll go from house to house and pinch every cook. <laughs> no, no, not every cook. You mean you'll pinch every crook? You'll pinch what you like, and I'll pinch what I like. <laughs> Costello, you... You'll pinch what you like, and I'll pinch what I like. You said that. You said that. Costello, why were you late tonight? Well, I overslept, that, but I had a very peculiar dream. I dreamed I was a pincushion in a, in a room full of balloon dancers. And am I mad? Why are you mad? Well, I woke up just when things were beginning to pop. Right. <laughs> After next week, I'm going to get my whole... I'm going to get my own room. I can't sleep with my brother Pat anymore. All night long, he dreams he's Roy Rogers. Well, why should that disturb you? He also dreams I'm triggered. Right. <laughs> 
Evan, if you will appoint me Sheriff Vincino, I'll clean up the town. I'll mop up all the pool rooms. I'll clean out all the saloons. I'll scour the alleys. How can you do that? On the side, I'm a street cleaner. <laughs> Costello, if I make you the new sheriff, you've got a lot of brave men to follow. Listen to the records of the backgrounds. Sheriff Jones, Redcoats, Northwest Mounted, 1931. Oh, yeah. Sheriff Brown, Redcoats, Northwest Mounted, 1938. Sheriff Costello, Sportscoats, Bullock's Basement, 1975. <laughs> Look, though, to do criminal work, you have to know something about the law. For instance, do you know do you know how to put up a defense? Oh, sure. All you have to could I have that again? I said, do you know how to put up a defense? Why should I put up a defense? I already put up at the wall around my house. <laughs> I also got at the hedge in the backyard. Why do I have to put up a defense? No, no, Costello, when I say you put up a defense, I don't mean you put up a fence like you uh, do when you put up a fence. I mean a defense like when you put up a defense. Yeah, but I think you nuts. Now you think... <laughs> it's no use. You wouldn't know how to act in a criminal investigation anyhow. Oh, is that so? Yes. I was down at a morgue yesterday to see a gangster that was killed. I lifted up the sheet, and there he lay, the corpus delicatessen. That <laughs> dummy. Corpus delicti, not corpus delicatessen. This was a corpus delicatessen. He was stabbed with a salami. <laughs> well, I knew you were cleaning up Encino, but you didn't have to dump that heap of rubbish here on the stage. Rubbish? Oh, pardon me, it's Costello. I... <laughs> Well, Costello is sheriff of Encino. He's going to chase all the criminals out of town. Well, buddy, you ought to put me on that job. You know I'm a regular bloodhound. From the looks of your ears, you must be pot cocker spaniel, too. <laughs> I don't have to take any more insults from you, Costello. I can see through you. I've got eyes like a hawk. And a beak to match. <laughs> Costello. How dare you insult my wife? She's beautiful. Why, before I married her... She had men falling in her feet. And why not? She was refereeing fights at the Legion Stadium. <laughs> oh, you pigeon puss pop-eyed penguin. When I was a girl living in the country, boys used to court me from ten miles away. They had to. They were afraid to come any closer. <laughs> Pay no attention to money. Say, that's a pretty hat you're wearing, dear. Oh, I just bought it. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think I should wear it to one side off the face? If you're smart, you'll wear it over your face. <laughs> oh, low life. Low life? Uh, by the way, buddy, I got some new shoes, too. Do you like them? They're pumps. On, on you, they look good. Well, thanks. Considering that your legs look like pump handles. <laughs> oh, how dare you? I have beautiful legs. You're bowling. My wife is not bowling. She's the only woman in the world that can walk down a bowling alley while the game is on. <laughs> Costello, for insulting my wife, I'm not going to make you sheriff of Encino, and I'm not going to give you this beautiful badge. Oh, please have it. Let me be the sheriff. I've always wanted a badge. Everybody's got a badge but me. A cop has a badge, a fireman has a badge, even a little boy scout has a badge. Abbott, I've just got to have a badge. But, uh, why do you have to have a badge? I'm tired of holding up my pants with my teeth. <laughs> oh, all right. I hereby appoint you sheriff of Encino. Step forward, and I'll pin this badge on your shirt. Thank you, Abbott. I mean, Your Honor. Hold still. I'm tearing your shirt. I ain't wearing any shirt. <laughs> Come on. We're going over to the sheriff's office in Encino right now. 
so you can start to work immediately. Well, Sheriff Costello, you can take over at once. I've got it, Abbott. What? Ma'am broke into your room? Yes, ma'am. I'll put it on the police radio right away. Calling all cars. Calling all cars. Go to 237 Mulberry Street. An old maid found a burglar in her room. Proceed with caution. The old maid is armed. <laughs> well, Costello, you're catching on to your job fast. I found you here. I have news for you. I just picked up a cent. Here's nice cents more. Grab a bus and get out of town. Cut nah. <laughs> that out, Costello. My wife may be in trouble. Oh, that's right, buddy dear. Something terrible has just happened. What did he do? Find your birth certificate? Uh, <laughs> Costello. <laughs> Costello, pay attention to my wife. As the sheriff of Encino, it's your duty to hear her out. Well, if it'll make you happy, I'll throw her out. Uh, 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 Never mind him, dear. Let's hear your story. Well, for the last couple of nights, there's been a lot of strange noises. Screams and gunshots coming from that empty house next door to us. Suddenly, at two o'clock in the morning, as I was standing by the stove baking fudge... Ah! What happened? What happened? Hell, she burned her fudge. She burned... <laughs> no, I saw a mysterious man peering out of the attic window... He made an ugly face at me like this. No, no, don't do that. I haven't made the face yet. How can I tell? <laughs> Quiet, Costello. This may be more serious than you think. I'd like to see the sheriff. Ah! That's him! That's the mysterious man! Costello, look! It's Bella Lugosi. Bella Lugosi. <clears throat> Just a minute, Costello. Mr. Lugosi, I am the chairman of the uh, Committee for Crime Prevention in Encino. Now, uh, just what is the nature of your complaint? Well, I'll put it in a simple language that even a moron can understand. Step aside, Abbott. He's talking to me. <laughs> now, listen, Lugosi, I'm the sheriff around here, and I'm going to ask you some questions. Now, what were those screams in your house at midnight? That was my business. And what about those gunshots? That's my business. Ask him about those dead bodies in the basement. It's also my business. This guy is doing a heck of a business. <laughs> that settles it, Costello. You, Sheriff, will have to investigate and search Lugosi's house tonight at midnight. You will like the house, Costello. It's the only house in Encino where every room has a, a bat. <laughs> And a strange man should suddenly appear with a long, sharp knife in his hand and offer to cut your throat? Yes. Refuse him. <laughs> Abbott, take back the badge. I don't want to be sheriff anymore. Get me out of here now, Abbott. <laughs> It's only half the fun, folks. Just as many laughs yet to come. But first, listen to this.
Susan Miller with Matty Malnick and his orchestra has a springtime story about the Dickie Bird song. A Dickie Bird whispered, haven't you heard? Spring is here, spring is here, spring is here. A little crow sang a happy hello, my favorite time of the year. A little frog sang a song on his log, lose your blues, lose your blues, lose your blues. And you and I fell in love in reply on hearing the dicky bird's news. If you have to look around to find the reason for such a wonderful thing, you can blame it on the sentimental season. Falling in love is done in the spring. A bobolink looked at us with a wink At a boy, at a girl, nothing's wrong When you're in love, you'll go swinging along Singing a Dickie Bird song You have to look around to find the reason for such a wonderful thing. You can blame it on the sentimental season. Falling in love is done in the spring. The bobolink looked at us with a wink. At a boy, at a girl, nothing's wrong. When you're in love, you'll go swinging along, singing a Dickie Bird song. Well, Costello, here we are at Bella Lugosi's house. Have it. It's awful dark in that house. But you've got to go in there. You're the sheriff. You've got to go in there and look for the trouble. Couldn't I look for it out here? There's more light. Look at me. I'm not scared. Shh, Abbott. I think I hear something. Or is it my imagination? <coughs> Thank goodness it was only my imagination. <laughs> well, Sheriff Costello, I see you have come to investigate my house. Come in. I'm making myself a sandwich. What kind of a sandwich? It's a rattlesnake burger. <laughs> covered with pickled toads and diced bat wings. Do you put ketchup on it? What? To get heartburn? No. <laughs> it's too bad you won't be here for breakfast. We are having shrouded wheat. Shrouded wheat? Abbott. Look, there's a casket in the corner with rubber sheets in it. Rubber sheets in it? Yes, I line all my caskets with rubber sheets. So the rain can't get in. Why? My beer is the dry beer. <laughs> hey, Costello, look at that funny-looking machine over there in the corner. Now, that's my Sears machine. On that, I manufacture... Robots. Get it, Abbott? Sears are robots. 
out of here. I don't like the looks of this place. Look at the grandfather's clock in the corner. Oh, lots of people have grandfather's clocks. With their grandfather's hanging in it like a pendulum? <laughs> Never mind that, Costello. Question Lugosi about the house. Mr. Lugosi, where is the former owner of this house? Do you see that pile of freshly dug dirt in the corner? Yes, sir. Well, that's not a vegetable garden. Hmm, that's strange. I thought I felt a draft on my neck. What's strange about that? I have no neck. <laughs> Mr. Lugosi, what are you whispering for? I was born in a library. I had to stay there six months. How come? My father lost his card. Hey, look, Costello. There's a skeleton in this room. Abbott, there's two skeletons in this room. Two skeletons? Yeah, I just jumped out of my skin. Hey, Abbott, look. Lugosi has just disappeared through that wall. Pardon me, Abbott. I want to see somebody outside. Who? Me. Uh, come back here, Costello. You're scared? Why don't you sing? Go ahead and sing. It'll keep up your courage. Carry me back to old Virginia. You keep singing like that and they'll drag you back. Who are you? I'm a ghost. I'm the ghost of Richard, the lion-hearted. Who are you? I'm Costello, the chicken-livered. <laughs> Mr. Ghost, Costello is the sheriff and we've got to investigate this house. Why don't you start in the cellar? Here, I'll open the door for you. You can go right down those stairs. <laughs> Costello, where are you? I'm down in the cellar, Rabbit, but look out for that first step. It's a Lulu. <laughs> it's all right, Costello. Here I am. I'll turn on this flashlight and we'll take a look around. Rabbit, quick, look over there. There's a body on the floor. Is he dead? I can't tell. His head is missing. I... <laughs> out of here, Abbott. Costello, what are we? Mice or men? I don't know about you, but I'm glad there's no cat around. <laughs> Look. Mila Lugosa's back. Costello, it is indeed regrettable that you choose to prowl around in my cellar. I'm in a bloodthirsty mood. So far this week, I've only killed nine people. This guy sounds like a California driver. <laughs> Just a minute, Lugosi. Costello's the sheriff of this town, and you've got, a, you've got a dead man lying down here in your cellar. Yes, I know. He lives here. But he's dead. He's dead, I tell you. Why don't you throw him out? I can't. His rent is paid up until June 1st. 
on, Costello. We've got to continue with the search. Well, go ahead with your search. If you want me, I've been the morgue lying on my slab. That's where I'm happiest. I'm lying on my slab. Don't look now, Abbott, but I think he's a little slab happy. <laughs> Come on, Costello. Let's look in this room. Open the door. Costello, what in the world was that? I don't know, and I ain't getting down off this channel here to find out. Come on down here, Costello. Hey, look. I just found a secret closet. Let's open it. Now, don't touch that door, Costello. Look at that sign. It says, this closet has never been opened in over 175 years. I don't believe that. I'm going to open it. The British are coming! Costello! Costello, where are you? I'm hiding over here under this bed. Come on, crawl out from under that bed. Okay. Now, I wonder who put that piggy bank under here. <laughs> hey, look, Costello. There's a panel sliding open in that wall. Ah, oh, gentlemen, how can I ever thank you? You've released me from a hypnotic spell that I've been under for over a thousand years. Oh, Abbott, she's beautiful. Tell me, miss, are you a mummy? Oh, no, I'm not even married. <laughs> Gee, you're lovely. Where did you come from? I remember coming here on Noah's Ark with all the animals. They all came in pairs. The birds came in pairs. The rabbits came in pairs. Did everything come in pairs? Everything but the worms. They come in apples. <laughs> what, are, what are you two doing here? Well, we're trying to solve the secrets of this house. I can help you. I know this house. I've got the inside. Uh, what you've got on the outside ain't bad either. <laughs> Be careful. Be careful. Didn't Costello. have enough material, eh? Costello. Costello. Lo, Lou, Lou, be careful. This girl is a vampire. She may be dangerous. And besides, she's a thousand years old. You ought to be able to handle a rabbit. She's the same age as your wife. Which one of you gallant gentlemen opened that panel and released me? I did. Oh, I'm going to reward you. Come, put your arms around me. I'm going to kiss you. There, how was that? Abbott, this kid is more than a thousand years old. Ah, oh, you're very sweet. You remind me of an actor I used to go with 500 years ago. Really? You went with an actor 500 years ago? What was his name? Al, Al Jolson. <laughs> hey, what's that? Oh, 
It's, it's Lugosi coming back. He mustn't find me here. I've got to get back behind my panel. But before I go, you may take my hand and kiss it. Thank you. Thank you. Costello, what are you doing? I'm kissing her hand. But Costello, the girl is gone. She's gone back behind that panel. Now, wasn't she sweet? She gave me her hand a kiss. I've got her hand and I'm holding it in mine and she's gone. And I wasn't that. She's gone. Mom, I still got her hand up. Dad! Quiet! What are you trying to do? Wake up the living? <laughs> Costello! Costello! It's Bella Lugosi. He's coming towards us. Well, Sheriff Costello, I've got to go now before I get into trouble with the police. Are you afraid of the police because you killed those nine people last week? No, it's not that. Are you afraid of the police because of the dastardly crimes you've committed? No, it's not that. Then why are you afraid of the police? Yes, why? Why do you have to leave here so suddenly? Oh, I just remembered I left a, my car parked in a one-hour zone. And you know those Los Angeles cops. Good night, Mr. Costello. <laughs> Good night, Mr. Lugosa. Isn't he a lovely <laughs> chap, Costello? Yes, he sure is. I'd like to have known him when he was alive. Costello with a final word. Folks, the contest we are running on our Saturday morning Abbott and Costello Kids show now has a jackpot of over $29,000. Get in on this contest, folks. We believe it is the biggest contest ever and for the greatest cause. The purpose is to combat juvenile delinquency. And by entering, you can win a $5,000 mink coat, a $5,000 airplane, a $3,000 trailer, a live baby elephant, thousands of dollars worth of diamonds, and loads of other big prizes totaling over $29,000. Listen Saturday morning over most of these stations. Good night, folks. Good night, everybody. Wednesday night at this time for another great Abbott and Costello show, produced and transcribed in Hollywood by Charles Vanda and featuring Susan Miller and Matty Malnick's orchestra. This is Michael Roy saying goodbye until this same time next Wednesday. Be sure to stay tuned for the outstanding entertainment which follows throughout the evening on this ABC station.
Kellogg's Raisin Bran has a secret. Kellogg's Raisin Bran has a secret. And what a secret. In Kellogg's Raisin Bran, the tasty raisins are dipped in honeycomb. That means plumper, more tender raisins, along with delicious golden crisp bran flakes, both fruit and cereal, all in one box. And no other raisin bran but Kellogg's gives you the tender goodness of raisins dipped in honeycomb. That's Kellogg's secret. So for your breakfast, make sure you get Kellogg's because... Kellogg's Raisin Bran has a secret. Suspense. And its producer, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. Good afternoon. We are honored to bring you on this first program in our new Sunday time, one of today's most talented actresses, Miss Sarah Churchill, starring in one of yesterday's most chilling tales, The Signalman by Charles Dickens. More often than not, a classic suffers in transition from one medium to another. The transcribed play you are about to hear is an exception to this generality. The late great writer-director Irving Reese, in his adaptation, has given a dimension to the story that the late great Charles Dickens never imagined. We suggest that you might find it interesting to read the Dickens story after listening to this, the Reese dramatization of The Signalman, starring Miss Sarah Churchill, a tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. smashed by like a wounded monster screaming in pain and disappeared into the dark tunnel. In those brief seconds, I'd relived the emotions of my childhood. I still trembled with the child's terror and fascination that had surged through me the many times I stood here 20 years before. Nothing had changed. The steep, dripping wet walls of jagged stone that led down to the tracks the gloomy mouth of a tunnel, the small signalman's shack huddled against the side of the cutting. Even the job was held by the same man they had told me in the village. He stood there in the glow of an angry sunset, furling a signal flag around a short pole. I called to him. Hello, below. Instead of looking up at me, he turned tensely to stare toward a red signal light that glowed at the mouth of the tunnel. Hello, below there! He finally turned, slowly it seemed to me, even fearfully, and looked up. He stared at me unanswering. I was afraid the suddenness of my call had unnerved him. I, I tried to compensate by being overly casual. Hello! I would like to speak to you. Is there a path I can use to come down? He stared silently a while longer, then finally pointed his flag to a spot in the cutting embankment. It was a zigzag path with small footholds cut through the clammy stone. 
The track seemed a mile below. But I was determined to get down. Midway, I, I sensed a vague vibration of earth and air, like a sound that could be felt but not heard. I tried to fight down a fear that suddenly gripped me. The air was filled with a violent pulsation. It seemed to have a force that could draw me down. I suddenly threw my hands up to my eyes as though to shut out some terrible sight. And then I flattened myself against the jagged rock and clutched her. Then I was angry with myself, ashamed of this uncontrolled childish reaction. I could see the signalman still staring at me. I climbed down the rest of the way quickly and carelessly, and I walked towards him with a casual smile. He watched me expectantly. Hello. I'm Amy Sayers. I used to live in the village. I, I was anxious to speak to you. I, I'm, I'm sorry if I startled you when I called down. Why did you use those words? Those words? I hardly remember. I... I think I shouted, hello, below there, or something to that effect. Not to that effect, miss. Those were the very words. I know them well. Admit those were the words. All right. I admit. Why did you use them? Well, you were below. I wanted to attract your attention, so I called, hello, below there. Seems logical, doesn't it? Aye, miss. If you had no other reason. Well, what other reason could I possibly have? I... Thought you would tell me. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe I shouldn't have come down. I, I think I frightened you. Now, why would you think that, miss? Well, you stare at me as, as though you had a dread of me. Aye, miss. I was doubtful whether I'd seen you before. Well, if you have, it was when I was eight years old, standing on that bridge over the tunnel up there. I used to love watching the trains. Well, then my family moved to the city. This is my first visit back in 20 years. You don't believe me. I'm not certain. Where could you have seen me? Don't you know? Since I've been away for 20 years, I... Up there, by the red signal light at the mouth of the tunnel. That's why you turned and stared there when I first called. Aye, miss. What would I be doing up at the signal light? I don't know. I wish I... No, it's a mistake, miss. I haven't been well. Uh, what is it you wish to speak to me about? Well, I'm, I'm a writer. I wanted to interview you. Me? Why, miss? Well, my magazine does a weekly biographical piece on interesting people and unusual occupations. It's called Close Up. Aye, miss. I've read them. You have. You seem surprised. Well, pleased, perhaps. Well, that one's so unsophisticated as oh, I... I... I really didn't mean that. Yeah. Well, there's a bit of a fire in my shack. It'd be more comfortable for you there. Won't you come in? Yes, thank you. My, this is a lonely post. Visitors must be rare. 
Hi, miss. The branch superintendent makes an annual inspection. Yeah, and that's all. Except for... Yes? Uh, come in, please. Oh, how snug and comfortable. Aye. Most of my waking life is spent here. I've tried to make it pleasant. And you've succeeded. You were speaking of visitors just as we came in. I'll put this chair nearer the fireplace. One chills out there. I say, you have a fine collection of books. Aye. They've given me much companionship in the long nights. Pretty weighty companions. Gibbon's Decline and Fall, Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, Darwin's... Did they surprise you again, miss? May I be frank? I'll have to be if I'm to succeed with the article. My editor is only interested in... Odd? Well, the unusual. And the level of my reading seems above the level of my station. Not many people in any station these days... Oh, come now, miss. Was you call for frankness? All right. Why would a man with a mind capable of absorbing these subjects stay on a desolate job like this? Well, you see, when I was a young man, I, I became very interested in the natural philosophies. I, I set my course, I studied hard, planned the future, and then I, I ran wild, miss. I, I misused my opportunities. They went down, and I've, I've never risen again. Oh, I've, I've no complaint. I've made my bed. It's too late to make another. Maybe you gave up too soon. No, 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 miss, no, no. There, there are forces beyond us that shape us. One must know when not to resist, miss. Oh, I, I might have blooded myself a while longer, but I knew. I, I took this position 34 years ago. And you've never regretted? Oh, no. Not until... It... Until what? Won't you please tell me? Yeah, you first tell me what brought you here. But I have. Well, you said nothing of what made you think of this place specifically. There are many places and people... Well, I told you. I used to come here as a child. The trains frightened and fascinated me. I've always remembered it vividly through the years. I promised myself that one day I would come back and do a story on it. Good subjects aren't easy to find, you know. Why did you choose just now to come? These ideas germinate in a writer's mind for a while and then an impulse. And you were drawn here. You say that as though mystic forces were involved. It was much simpler, I assure you. I've been working hard. I decided that a few days in the country would do me good. I planned to use them profitably by doing a story on you. But you might have come to that decision last month or last year. Well, that's true, but... I can't see why you attach such special significance to the fact that I... Why? Why did they frighten you so? Wouldn't you think I might outgrow that silly childish fear? If I was drawn here, as you say, I, I guess it was to see whether I had. The modern psychiatrist would say it was a desire to relive a childhood experience. Aye, miss. There are many answers. Philosophers have even speculated on the possibility that the future can intrude on the memory as well as the past. But surely you don't believe that. I believe only in the evidence of my five senses. May I ask, 
Why did you go to the door? To check the tunnel light. But does it need to be checked so often? You did before we came in. Why are you staring at me so? Was I staring at you? Please, something is preying on your mind. Can't you tell me? The fire needs staring. You're avoiding my question. There's nothing here, miss. Your coming was a mistake. An old man in a railroad tunnel, it, it would require considerable imagination to make an interesting story of that. What exactly are your duties? Oh, eh, their responsibilities more than actual work, miss. Uh, exactness and watchfulness are required most. Uh, seeing that the signals operate, turning the switching handle now and then, listening to the telegraph ticker to see if the post is wanted. Uh, not much else. Do the hours weigh heavily through the night? It's very difficult to impart, miss. It's very difficult to speak of. Now, if you ever make another trip, I'll try to tell you. Yes, 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 of course. And I will have to make several trips before the story takes shape. Uh, when may I come again tomorrow? Ah, miss, if you wish. Thank you. I will be back tomorrow evening. Uh, uh, you won't have any difficulty getting back up. No, it was only that first trip down. Ah, well, I'll show me white light till you reach the top. Thank you. Oh. Well, I'll say good night now, miss. Good night, sir. I wish you a pleasant one. I regret that I... That... I understand. Ah, miss, I think you do. May I ask you, then, when you get to the top, don't call out to me, I beg of you. Don't, don't call out. I won't. And when you come tomorrow night, please don't call out. Of course not. Good night. And, and may I ask one parting question? Certainly. When you came down the path earlier tonight, midway, you suddenly threw your hands up to your eyes, like this, uh, as though to shut out some dreadful sight. Why? It was that uncontrollable, childish reaction. Like I said, I, I, I felt as though the train would draw me down. I, I covered my eyes like a child, not to see it. You had no feeling that the action was conveyed to you for some reason? No. Why should it seem otherwise? Because there's been someone at the red light at the mouth of the tunnel each night for a week now. Holding its hands up to its eyes, like that. As though to shut out some terrible sight. And you've actually seen it? Every night. Was it there tonight when you went to the door? Yes, I saw it quite clearly. Who was it? You! moment we will return to tonight's story of Suspense. The Signalman, starring Miss Sarah Churchill. The quiz is as exciting as quiz can be, but what is even more exciting on Strike It Rich is the human interest. For Strike It Rich is the quiz show that gives folks an opportunity to win cash prizes for a worthy cause. And what could be more exciting than that? Get in on the human interest every Monday through Friday when CBS Radio says strike it rich on most of these same stations. And now, we continue with The Signalman by Charles Dickens with Miss Sarah Churchill and Ben Wright. A tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. Suspense. 
I returned the next night as the distant clocks were striking nine. The signalman waited for me at the bottom of the cutting with his white light shining. We walked silently to his shack, entered it and sat down by the fire. I didn't wish to press him, so I said nothing. He stared at the burning embers for a moment and then turned to me. I'm going to tell you, Miss, as best I can, what troubles me. I'm glad. I mistook you for someone else last night. That troubles me. The mistake? There's someone else. Who is it, then? I don't know. What does it do? Well, this time it stands with its left arm across its face. The right arm is waved violently this way. As, as though to say, for God's sake, clear the way. Clear the way. You've heard those words? Oh, I'm not certain, not about those specific words, but I have heard it called before. When? Well, one moonlight night about a year ago, I was sitting here when I heard a voice cry, Hello! Below there! That's why you were startled when I used the word. I must. Well, I, I ran to the door and I looked out and I saw this... There's someone else standing up there by the red light near the tunnel, waving its arm as I just showed you. The voice was hoarse with shouting, and it cried, Hello! Below there! Look out! Look out! I caught up my lamp, and I ran towards the figure, calling, What's wrong? What has happened? Where? And when I got to the light, it was gone. Did you see where? Well, the tunnel was the only place it could go without passing me. Oh, I ran into the tunnel for 100 yards or so, and I searched around with my life. Then I ran back here and I telegraphed both ways. An alarm has been given. Is anything wrong? And the answer came back both ways. All's well. Of course. Now I'm going to take advantage of last night's permission to be frank. You've been here more than 30 years, haven't you? Uh -huh. It isn't the most cheerful place in the world, with that moaning wind through the tunnel and... The wild harp it makes of the telegraph wires. It's understandable that you could have the illusion you've heard a call. And anyone staring at the dark long enough as you did from the door could imagine seeing something. You've let it prey on your mind so long, it seems real. Well, I was not... I was not finished, miss. I'm sorry. Within six hours after it first appeared, the main line flyer crashed and derailed at the far end of the tunnel. And within ten hours, the dead and the wounded were being brought through the tunnel over to the spot where the figure stood. A coincidence. A tragic, remarkable coincidence. But don't you see... The... There is more, miss. Please forgive me. Six or seven months passed, and I've recovered from the surprise and shock when... One morning, just as daylight was breaking, I looked towards the red light, and I saw it again. Did it cry out? No, it was silent. It didn't wave its arm? No, miss, no. It leaned against the post with both hands covering the eyes like this, as though to blot out some terrible sight. That's why you asked me why I had put my hands to my eyes as I came down the path. Hi, miss. You called out the words it used the first time, and you covered your eyes as it did the second time. Go on, please. Well, that very day, as a train came out of the tunnel, I, I noticed a confusion of hands and heads at one of the coach platforms, and something waved. I saw it in time to flag down the engineer. He applied his brakes, but the train drifted past here, oh, about 100 yards. As I ran up to it, I heard 
terrible screams and cries. A, a beautiful young woman had fallen between the cars, and she was brought in here. She died on this very spot between us. How horrible. But I still don't see... One it. final word, miss, and, and, and you'll judge how my mind is troubled. It came back a week ago. And ever since, it's been there. At the light? Aye. It covers its eyes, it, it waves its arm, it shouts, For God's sake, clear the way, clear the way! I've no rest or peace for it. It, it calls me many minutes together in an agonized manner. Below there, look out, look out! It stands waving at me. It, it, it sounds the telegraph ticker. Did it sound the ticker last night while I was here? Twice. I assure you it was your imagination. The ticker did not sound last night. No, I've never made a mistake as to that, Miss. I, I don't wonder that you failed to hear it, but I heard it. You hear it now? Aye. What is it saying? It, it isn't clear. It, it only warns. It, it doesn't say against what. If I only knew what it meant... What is the danger? Where is the danger? There is danger overhanging somewhere on the line. Some terrible calamity will happen. Please, you mustn't let yourself go. But if I telegraph danger on either side of me or on both, I can give them no reason for it. I'd get into trouble and do no good. They'd think I was mad. And this is the way it would work, miss. Message, danger, take care. Answer, what danger, where? Message, don't know, but for God's sake, take care. They'd displace me. What else could they do, miss? For your sanity's sake... And for the sake of the lives that are dependent on you, you must listen to me. When it first stood under the danger light, why didn't it tell me where the accident was to happen if it must happen? Why didn't it tell me how it could be averted if it could have been averted? And when on its second coming it hid its face, why didn't it tell me instead she's going to die? Let them keep her at home. If it came on those two occasions only to show me that its warnings were true and so prepare me for the third, why not warn me plainly now? And I, Lord, help me, a mere signal man on this solitary station. Why not go to somebody with credit to be believed and power to act? Why? Why? I can help you, but you must face realistically what I have to say. Will you try? I, I, I'll try, miss. These accidents have shaken you deeply. You feel guilt about them, even though there was nothing you could do. You've let it prey on your mind. Until you imagine someone tried to warn you. I saw and heard that someone. Even the senses can deceive when the mind is under stress. Men dying of thirst on the desert imagine lakes and hear running streams. Oh, miss, the bodies of the dead were real enough. I'm speaking of what you imagined after the accident. If you let me, I'll prove to you, step by step, that the specter existed only in your fantasies. Well, how can you prove that in the face of what I've just told you? By appealing to the intelligent, reasoning portion of your mind. Listen. You were positive when you first saw me that I was the specter that you saw at the light, weren't you? You used the same words. Well, now listen carefully. I appeal to the intelligent, well-read, reasonable man. Three words. Hello below there. I was more than a hundred feet away at the top of the embankment, and you were here below with darkness falling. And three words made you positive you had seen me before. Can't you see you were trying to fit something to what you already believed? But then you put your hands to your eyes. Further the proof. You have allowed yourself to believe some disaster is about to befall. When I covered my eyes because of a childish fear, you fitted that to what you already believed. Oh, no, the telegraph ticker You must not... hear me out. Would you at any other time? 
Or would anyone at any time believe that a telegraph ticker could sound in a room this small and be heard by one person and not the other? But I told you... Now, the most important proof. You said that when you went to the door last night, it was there by the red danger light. Aye, it was. Will you come to the door with me now and tell me if it is still there? Well, do you see it? No. No, miss. It's not there. And I'm going to prove to you that it never was there. I studied the light from the top of the hill before I came down tonight. The post is at least seven feet high. The light is shielded with a hood. Even if a person stood directly under it or in front of it, they would be in complete shadow, in darkness. You couldn't see that person from this door, and you couldn't see that person if you walked within a few yards of her or him or it. I'm going to walk up the incline now to the light and prove it to you. I walked up the inclining tracks toward the red light at the mouth of a tunnel. The chill, dank wind had an edge like a cold knife. When I got to the light post, I stood directly under it. No portion of the red glow reached me. I was lost, completely in the dark. I saw the signal man silhouetted in the yellow light of the doorway. Hello! Can you see me? Hello below there. Can you see me? No. Good. Now start walking toward me and tell me when you can see me. He stepped between the rails of the northbound track on a line with the red signal light and walked toward me. Suddenly the icy hand of my childhood dread gripped me. There was a vague vibration of the earth and air. Far behind him, coming up the grade fast, I could begin to see the glow of the locomotive's light. Look out! Look out! For God's sake, clear the way! Clear the way! He walked as though in a spell. He didn't hear me. Oh, he wouldn't hear me. I was rooted to the gravel. I threw my left arm up to my eyes and waved my right arm frantically. Below there! Look out! Long after it was over, they found me, still standing there, both of my hands up to my eyes, to shut out the terrible sight. in which Miss Sarah Churchill starred in Irving Reese's adaptation of Charles Dickens' story, The Signalman. Wait. Wait a moment for a final and important word from Miss Churchill. Listen. Listen again next Sunday afternoon when radio's outstanding theater of thrills brings you Vincent Price in Three Skeleton Key, a tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. Suspense. 
Suspense is produced, directed, and taped in Hollywood by William N. Robeson. Mr. Ben Wright supported Miss Churchill as the signalman. The orchestra was conducted by Wilbur Hatch. Sound effects by Ray Kemper and Gus Bays, with Doc Bennett at the microphone controls. And here once more is today's star of Suspense, Miss Churchill. Thank you. It has been a pleasure to be a guest of Suspense, as it is always a pleasure for me to be a guest in your country. I do hope you will permit me a word to you, my host. One of the greatest privileges we English-speaking peoples enjoy is the franchise. From that distant day when the barons wrested the Magna Carta from King John at Runnymede to the day after tomorrow, we have cherished and fought for and even died for the right to vote. So please exercise your vote on Tuesday. Vote as you think, but vote. Stay tuned for five minutes of CBS News to be followed over most of these same stations by indictment. The next time you suffer from pains of headache, neuritis, or neuralgia, take Anison. You'll bless the day you heard of this incredibly fast way to relieve these pains. Now, the reason Anison is so wonderfully fast-acting and effective is this. Anison is like a doctor's prescription. That is, Anison contains not just one, but a combination of medically proven active ingredients in easy-to-take tablet form. Thousands of people have received envelopes containing anison tablets from their own dentist or physician, and in this way discovered the incredibly fast relief anison brings from pains of headache, neuritis, or neuralgia. So the next time a headache strikes, take anison for this wonderfully fast relief. Anison, A-N-A-C-I-N. Anison comes in handy boxes of 12 and 30. Economical family size. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details bottles of 50 and 100. Get Anison at any drug counter. Radio 59 WROW, first on the dial. And now, another tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Zero Hour, written for suspense by Ray Bradbury. Only with love, discipline, and luck 
can the helpless parents hope to lead the bewildered child toward the grown-up world where things are not always what they seem. But what if the parents were to be denied that opportunity? What if the innocent little children were to take over the world at five o'clock some quiet summer afternoon? Well, here's the answer as we bring you Ray Bradbury's chilling story of childhood, Zero Hour. What a game! Such excitement the children hadn't known in their whole lives. Mink talked earnestly to someone near the rose bush. Oh, that will be easy. No one was there. And then the two little girls shouting, laughing at each other. Such fun, such tremendous joy. It was all Mink's mother could do to get her grimy and excited daughter in for lunch. Goodness, Mink, I've never heard such a racket out in the garden. What were you and Anna up to? Most exciting game ever. Just ever. Oh, what's the name of the game? Invasion. Invasion? Well, invasion will have to wait until you've eaten your lunch properly. Now, slow down, young lady. Do you hear? Can't. Drill's waiting for me. Drill? What a peculiar name. Is he a new boy in the neighborhood, dear? He's new, all right. I don't think I've seen him. Which one is Drill? Oh, he's just around. I've got to go now, Mom. If we're going to have the invasion. You finish your milk, miss. Who's invading what? Martians are invading the Earth. Oh, I see. And Drill's a Martian? I think so. He's had a very hard time getting here. Oh, I should imagine. They couldn't figure a way to attack Earth. How to get in or something. Mm -hmm. Drill says they have to do it by surprise. And even get help from your enemy. Ah, fifth column. Yes. And all this time they haven't been able to figure out how to attack. Until one day, they thought of children. Well, that was bright of them. And they thought of how grown-ups are so busy. They never look under rose bushes or on lawns. Is that where Drill is now, under the rose bush? Yes, with all his friends, too. He says there's something about kids with under 11 with imagination. It's real funny to hear Drill talk. It must be. Well, you can run along now, so you can have your invasion before dark. Uh, bath tonight, school tomorrow, you know. Drill says I won't have to take any more baths. Oh, he does, does he? And we can stay up till 10 o'clock. Well, your friend Mr. Drill had better mind his P's and Q's or I'm going to call up his mother and tell That's her... That's just it. Drill says you're dangerous because you don't believe in Martians. Just like you think Drill's a kid. Well, he's not. And they're going to let us run the world when they get in. All of us kids. And I might even be queen. Well, that's nice, dear. Now run along. Mom? What is it, dear? Mom, when the invasion comes, we'll have to get rid of you and Daddy. But I'll be sure it won't hurt very much. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot. Hello? Hello, Mary. Helen! How are you? How nice. Are you in town? No, I'm up home in Plainfield. I was thinking of you, thought I'd call. It's long distance, though. You shouldn't. Oh, I can afford three minutes. <laughs> How's Henry? Fine. And Bill? Just fine. What about Mink? Oh, wonderful. Noisier than ever. She's got a new game now. It's taken the place of hopscotch. Invasion. Oh, is she playing that, too? Yes, are yours? Same thing. Some kind of geometric jacks, I suppose. Isn't it a scream? <laughs> All the kids their age are playing it up here. Timmy's got a crush on some guy named uh, Drill, I think. 
that's what it is. It must be a new password. Mink likes him, too. I didn't know it had got to your part of the world. Word of mouth, I suppose. You know, kids. Funniest thing. I got a letter from my sister in Boston. She says her kids are playing it, too. It's sweeping the country. Well, I wonder where they learned it. Don't ask me. All I know is what Timmy told me at lunch. Zero hours at five o'clock. When? Five o'clock today. That's when the invasion's going to be. <laughs> These kids and their imagination. <laughs> oh, I wanted to tell you about... And they talk a little more, schoolgirl friends, casual woman talk. But Mrs. Morris was thoughtful. She was thinking of other things, of adults, of little children with imagination, rose bushes, and their unseen friend named Drill. I will. She thought of how much she'd forgotten about being a child, and she wondered about Mink and all the kids everywhere who, at that moment, were playing Invasion. In just a moment, we will return for the second act of Suspense. Meet star Stuart Irwin. Nothing's worse for an actor than a nasty cold. To feel better quickly, I take wonderful four-way cold tablets, the fast way to relieve cold distress. Right. Tests of all the leading cold tablets proved four-way fastest acting. Four-way starts in minutes to relieve muscular pains, headache, reduce fever, calm upset stomach, also overcomes irregularity. Take my advice. For your next cold, take four-way cold tablets, the fast way to relieve those cold miseries. Four-way, only 29 cents. Our program will continue in a moment after a word about another fine product of Grove Laboratories. Does dandruff dull your hair, leave scalp itchy? Get Fitch Dandruff Remover Shampoo and get rid of unsightly dandruff in three minutes. Three minutes with Fitch regularly is guaranteed to keep embarrassing dandruff away forever. Apply Fitch before wetting hair, rub in one minute. Add water, lather one minute, rinse one minute. Every trace of dandruff goes down the drain. Three minutes with Fitch, unsightly dandruff's gone. Fitch can also leave hair up to 35% brighter. Fitch Dandruff Remover Shampoo. Inside the Morris house, an hour drowsed by, while across the town in other gardens, in other backyards, little children were excitedly playing a game, talking to rose bushes. The grass lawns, trees, and shrubs. Even children in apartment houses high in the air, conferring with potted plants, cactus and ivy. Mrs. Morris had finished her mending and gone back to the kitchen when Mink burst in. Hello, dear. Hi, Mom. Can I have a glass of water? Of course, I'll get it. Pi R squared, 47. A over 56 to the 7th degree. X, T, 7. What, dear? Nothing, Ma. Here's your water. Thanks. How are things going? Hmm? The invasion. Oh, that. Yes, that. Almost finished. Drill says we should be ready on time. Five o'clock? That's right. How did you know? Helen called from Painsfield. She says Timmy's playing it, too. Hey, that's keen. Well, I guess all the kids are, aren't they? No, not all of them. Not guys like Gil Eskley and Jimmy Woods. They're growing up. Make fun of us. 
They're worse than parents. Well, we'll get rid of them. Jill says it's okay to kill them, too. Now, I don't like that kind of talk, Ming. Do you hear me? I don't like it at all. Oh, Mom. I mean it. You keep on that way and there's no more playing. You'll have to tell Anna to go home and you'll stay inside until bedtime. I'm sorry. Well, I should think so. Thanks for the water, Mom. Ming. Uh-huh? What did those numbers mean? What numbers? Those numbers you were saying to yourself a minute ago. Oh, that. They're the things we have to do to get Joel and his friends out. That's all. Uh, look, dear, why don't you and Anna go down to the drugstore and get some ice cream? You don't have to use your allowance. I'll give you the money. Haven't got time, Mom. Thanks. <laughs> well, I, I never thought I'd hear you say that. I've got to go now, Mom. Uh, wait just a minute. Mink, uh, I want you to tell me the truth now. What is this invasion silliness? It isn't silly. It's just a game, that's all, Mom. We're just playing an invasion. Excuse me, I gotta get back now. I'll see you later. Mrs. Morris was disturbed. She wasn't sure why. But because she was disturbed, she did something she didn't usually do. She called her husband at the office. Hello, dear. Hello, Henry. I'm sorry to bother you, but Miss Maxson said you weren't busy. Not too. I should be able to get home early today. Everything all right? Yes. You all right? I'm fine. Mink? Oh, she's... Henry? What, dear? Oh, nothing. I I just felt like talking to you for a minute, that's all. <laughs> Listen, uh, you sure you're all right? Yes. Mink been getting on your nerves? No, not not really. She, she's playing outside. She's fine. Honey, is something wrong? No, I, I told you I was thinking about you and, and wanted to talk, that's all. Uh, what time do you think you'll be home? About five, maybe a little earlier. Five? Oh. Hey, what do you mean, oh? Well, I was just thinking... <laughs> Nothing, really. Goodbye, darling. You are okay, aren't you? I'm fine. Goodbye. Bye. Another hour passed. It was half past four. Outside it was quiet. The two little girls, more intent than ever upon the endless movement of their game... Mrs. Morris watched from the window, and she had never known Mink to have such powers of concentration. She turned on the radio and sat drinking a cup of coffee, turning over her thoughts. Children. Children love and hate side by side. Sometimes children love you and hate you all in a half a second. Children. Do they ever forget or forgive the whippings and the harsh, strict words of command? I wonder. I wonder. How can you forget or forgive those over and above you, those tall, silly dictators, those parents? Mom? What is it, dear? Have we got a piece of lead pipe and a hammer? Well, I don't know. They might be in the garage. What do you want them for? Oh, we just need them. Well, if you tell me, I can... I can get them. Thanks, Mom. Is something wrong? Drill's stuck halfway. If we could get him in all the way through, it'd be easier. Then all the others could come through after him. Well, can I help? 
Thanks, Mom. I can do it. You better hurry, Mink. I want you to take your bath before your father comes home. All right. He's coming home early, and... Mink? Mink? Mink has disappeared behind the shrubs. Mrs. Morris knew it was ridiculous to make an issue of it. Besides, what was the issue? Invasion? Drill? Zero hour? Just a child's game. Time passed. Curious, waiting silence came upon the street, deepening. And then from the living room, Mrs. Morris heard... o'clock. Zero hour. It had come. And now it had gone. But was the clock right? And Mrs. Morris, knowing how foolish it was, knowing it, went to the phone and dialed. Silly. Silly. because it wasn't five o'clock yet, not zero hour yet. Then she heard the car drive up and her husband greeting her daughter. Hi, Mink. Hi, Daddy. How's it going? Fine. Got a kiss for me? I haven't got time now, Daddy. That's a nice thing. What are you doing? We're playing Invasion. Swell. Your mother in the house? Yes. Okay, be good. I will. Zero hour in a few minutes, Daddy. All right, I'll be ready. Hi. Our uh, daughter didn't have time for a kiss. How about you? <laughs> Hi, Dave. Uh, not particularly. Would you like a cocktail? You read my mind. Martini? Perfect. Anything exciting happen today? No. Oh, Helen called. Oh? Uh-huh. From Plainfield. I told her she was crazy, but she just felt like calling. Like you calling me this afternoon. Crazy, huh? What was that all about? I told you. I I wanted to. Uh, hey, um, incidentally, what's this new game the kid's playing? Invasion? That's a nice, depressing thought. Is Mink all right? Come to think of it, she, she looked kind of funny. Yes, she's all right. What's the time, Henry? A couple of minutes after five. Why? No, the clock's wrong. By your watch. Huh? Oh, I've got, uh... Two minutes, too. I'm probably slow. You got something on the stove? No. No, I, I, I just want... Honey, hey, um... Look at me. What's the matter? Nothing. Really. Now... Really? Mink's been up to something. Of course not. Then what? I, I guess I'm a little tired. Up, upset, that's all. You want to go out for dinner? No, I, I've got a steak in the icebox. Tell you what, I'll barbecue it. How'd that be? Fine. What was that? What? I thought I heard something. I didn't. I, I... I must have been imagining it. You are jumpy. 
Why don't you have a drink? Do you good. I don't want one. What time is it now? Mary, what is this? I mean it. Something's wrong. Now, I want to know... It's silly, Henry. It's so silly. I'm on edge, that's all. I I I don't like it. That kid's done something, hasn't she? I'm going to get her in here. No, Henry, please. Please don't. She hasn't... It's nothing at all. I, I just... What's that? I don't know. Those kids haven't got anything dangerous out there, have they? I noticed a lot of junk lying around. I thought it was a game. She wouldn't have done it herself. They've made her do it. What the devil? Maybe you'd better go out and tell them to stop playing now. It's after five. You tell Mink to put off the invasion until tomorrow. Tell her that... What are they up to? I better take a look. Mink! Good Lord, it's outside there. No, it's upstairs. I, I know it is. In the attic. Mary, Mary, it's not up there. It's outside. It's in the attic. That's where it is. Her mind had worked that quickly. Any excuse to get her husband away from the outside to get him upstairs to the attic in time. And outside, there were more eerie explosions, and they could hear the children screaming with delight. It's not in the attic. It's outside. Mink's out there. What's the matter with you? No, no, Henry, I'll show you. Hurry. Get inside, quick. Now we're safe until tonight. Maybe we can sneak out later. Maybe we can escape. Are you crazy? Why did you throw the key away? For heaven's sake, the kid's out there. Do you want her to... Oh, you don't know. You, you, You don't... We've got to stay here, Henry. We've got to. You've got to stay here with me. I don't know how the devil I can get out. Where's that light switch? Be quiet, please. Be quiet. They'll hear us. They'll find us. Henry, please. There's that noise. It's in this house now. Mary, what is this? Mary, what's happening? You know. Answer me. Stop that. Mary, somebody's downstairs. (laughs) Who's down there? Oh, no. Who? No, no, no. No, hush, hush. Please be quiet. Please, they might go away. Please. And between his wife's terror and the electric humming from below, Mr. Morris felt a great fear. They trembled together in silence in the attic. Mr. and Mrs. Morris, parents of the little girl named Mink. Then they heard steps coming up the stairs and a voice. Mommy? Daddy? Where are you? And a queer, cold light became visible under the door crack, a strange odor, and the alien sound of eagerness in Mink's voice was almost more than they could bear. And another sound. And the lock to the attic door melted. Mink. Mink with bright little eyes and tousled hair peered inside. And behind her, tall, wavering blue shadows. Frightful shadows.
Have you ever wondered what people abroad think of us? Many of them don't have a very high opinion of our country or our way of life. It's not because of anything we've done or haven't done. It's what they think we have or haven't done. Unfortunately, those thoughts were planted in their minds by books and other literature distributed in both free and iron curtain countries by the communists. This material has been deliberately slanted to create false impressions of America and Americans. But the people who read them are hungry for the truth. Somewhere on your bookshelves or in your attic, you must have books you're through with. By contributing them to Books from America, you can help send the truth about America to readers and students abroad. Particularly helpful are good standard American novels, up-to-date histories and geographies, as well as English grammars. If they're in good condition, with hard covers, pack them up and send them to Books from America, Box 1960, Washington 13, D.C. That address again is Books from America, Box 1960, Washington 13, D.C. Suspense. You've been listening to Zero Hour. Written for suspense by Ray Bradbury. In a moment, the names of our players and a word about next week's story of suspense. Are you all out of tune because you're irregular? Then help yourself get back in tune with Kellogg's All Brand. You'll feel right on pitch when Kellogg's All Brand goes gently to work relieves constipation due to lack of bulk by supplying your system with bulk-forming whole bran. Yes, a daily bowl full of Kellogg's All Bran with milk helps put you right back in tune. The natural way. The good-tasting way, too. Fact is, Kellogg's All Bran is the one brand cereal that combines proved effectiveness with appetizing taste and crispness. It never gets mushy in milk. So remember, if constipation's a problem... Gentle it away, as millions do, with Kellogg's All Brand. The good food way to keep regular as clockwork. A-double-L hyphen B-R-A-N. Kellogg's All Brand. At your grocer. Tonight's story were Francie Myers as Mink, Ginger Jones as Mrs. M, and John Gibson as Henry. Others in the cast included Vivian Smolin and Sarah Fussell. Listen again next week when we return with The Long Night, written especially for suspense by Walter Black. Another tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Here's a word from RCA Victor. Inch for inch, your best buy in television is RCA Victor 19-inch. Yes, a great many American families have taken this advice and bought the thrilling RCA Victor 19-inch console. Truly, the most exciting buy in television. When you set out to become an RCA Victor million-proof television set owner, 
Remember that the set you choose will be the very hub of your home for years to come. So select the model you really want most. And chances are that model will be the Kingley RCA Victor 19-inch console. Inch for inch, your best buy in television. Your 19-inch set will give you, in a great big way, all the matchless million-proof qualities of sight and sound possible only to the world leader in electronics. Yes, inch for inch, your best buy in television is indeed RCA Victor 19-inch. And with it goes wishes to you and your family for all the warmth and good cheer of million-proof television by RCA Victor. Are you one of the frightened? Have you ever imagined someone was following you? Caught a glimpse of a strange face in the crowd behind you and then that face mysteriously seems to be with you wherever you go? Sylvester Dodge had just such an experience. Walk with me a bit and I'll tell you about Sylvester and his man in the raincoat. Sylvester Dodge was a man like you or me. He worked as a bookkeeper in a Wall Street office, and for many years he was saving for the day when he could afford his trip to Europe, away from ledgers and bank balances and adding machines. Finally, the last week of daily toil approached, and anticipation thrilled his fat little body as he boarded the Lexington Avenue local. The big vacation loomed on his horizon as the reward of a dreary lifetime. It was then that Sylvester Dodge first noticed the man in the raincoat with the curiously shaped umbrella. Something about the man made Sylvester shudder. The man's face was a deathly white, and the hands surrounding the handle of the umbrella were like great claws. The flesh of the fingers were horribly gnarled and ghastly green. Sylvester could not bear to look at him, but even in turning away, he felt the eyes of the man boring into his back like twin beams of awful light. You know the feeling, don't you? Someone who's looking at you, staring at you, eyeing you with such a terrible concentration that you want to scream or cry out, Stop! Stop! When the train reached the station, Sylvester rushed from his car like a man released from prison. The man in the subway had shocked him, but then again, you do meet all kinds of people in New York, don't you? And so Sylvester Dodge began the five-block walk to his office. The sun was out. April breezes caressed the stone buildings, and people hustled along with spring steps. But Sylvester had that curious feeling that I mentioned to you. Someone was following him. He felt eyes peering at his back, could feel somebody's interest and attention focused on his rounded body hurrying through the crowd. He found himself walking faster, faster. He stopped for a streetlight, panting for air. He turned. A deathly white face in the crowd bobbed like a Halloween skeleton and vanished. Sylvester Dodge whirled and raced across the street, his coat tails <coughs> 
fly. He stopped again, a block away from his office, and flung a backward look. There was the man in the raincoat, waving his claw-like hand in greeting the, the umbrella dangling from the wrist. Something pounded in Dodge's skull, and desperately he raced the remaining block and fell against the building wall, gasping for breath. He turned slowly, fighting for his reason, but no, there was the man with the raincoat, a scant ten yards away, coming towards him. The ghastly face was smiling, the umbrella was outstretched, almost as if it was seeking something. Sylvester Dodge pushed out from the wall and left the protection of the building. At that precise moment, the grand piano that was being hoisted to the office on the fourth floor swung awkwardly on its pulley, the rope snapped, and its great weight crashed to the sidewalk, pinning Sylvester Dodge to his death. So you see, Poor Sylvester tried to run away from his fate and dodged in the wrong direction, all because he had the silly notion that someone was following him. Well, uh, I'll leave you here, my friend. Uh, huh? Well, you don't think my face is so awfully white, do you? Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I seem to have dropped my umbrella. Would you mind very much handing it to me? Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. Near the end of October... Business was better. The war scare was over. More men were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, 
The Crosley Service estimated that 32 million people were listening in on radios. In the next 24 hours, not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern state, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. Maximum temperature 66, minimum 48. This weather report comes to you from the Government Weather Bureau. We take you now to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. With a touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Capacita. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel situated in downtown New York. Now, a tune that never loses favor, the ever-popular Stardust, Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with a noted astronomer, Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on this event. In a few moments, we will take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, New Jersey. We return you until then to the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. We 
are ready now to take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, where Carl Phillips, our commentator, will interview Professor Richard Pearson, famous astronomer. We take you now to Princeton, New Jersey. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is, this is Carl Phillips speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton. I'm, I'm standing in a large semicircular room, pitch black except for an oblong split in the ceiling. Through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanism of the huge telescope. The ticking sound you hear is the vibration of the clockwork. Professor Pearson stands directly above me on a small platform, peering through the giant lens. I'll ask you to be patient, ladies and gentlemen, during any delay that may arise during our interview. Besides the ceaseless watch of the heavens, Professor Pearson may be interrupted by telephone or other communication. During this period, he is in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world. Professor, may I begin our questions? <coughs> Any time, Mr. Phillips. Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. A red disk swimming in a blue sea. Transverse stripes across the disk. Quite distinct now, because Mars happens to be at the point nearest the Earth, in opposition, as we call it. In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify, Professor Pearson? Huh. Not canals, I can assure you, Mr. Phillips. Safe. Although, that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then you're quite convinced, as a scientist, that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? I should say the chances against it are a thousand to one. And yet... How do you account for these gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? Phillips, I cannot account for it. Oh, by the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners, how far is Mars from the Earth? Approximately 40 million miles. <laughs> well, that seems a safe enough distance. Uh, just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Someone has just handed Professor Pearson a message. While he reads it, let me remind you that we, we are speaking to you from the observatory in Princeton, New Jersey where we are interviewing the world-famous astronomer, Professor Pearson. Uh, one moment, please. Professor Pearson has passed me a message which he has just received. Uh, Professor, may I read the message to the listening audience? Certainly, Mr. Phillips. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read you a wire addressed to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray of the Natural History Museum, New York. Quote, 9.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Seismograph registered shock of almost earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of Princeton. Please investigate. Signed, Lloyd Gray, Chief of Astronomical Division. Unquote. Professor Pearson, could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars? Oh, hardly, Mr. Phillips. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, for the past ten minutes, we've been speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton bringing you a special interview with Professor Pearson, noted astronomer. This is Carl Phillips speaking. We are returning you now to our New York studio. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the latest bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News, Toronto, Canada. Professor Morse of Macmillan University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports received from American observatories. Now nearer home comes a special bulletin from Trenton, New Jersey. 
It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Carl Phillips, give you a word picture of the scene as soon as he can reach there from Princeton. In the meantime, we take you to the Hotel Martinet in Brooklyn, where Bobby Millett and his orchestra are offering a program of dance music. Take you now to Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again, out at the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Professor Pearson and myself made the 11 miles from Princeton in 10 minutes. Well, I hardly know where to begin. To paint for you a word picture of a strange scene before my eyes, like something out of a modern Arabian night. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it, yes. I guess that's the thing directly in front of me. Half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. But I can see if the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. At least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. Has a diameter of, um, um, what would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? Uh, what would you say, uh, what's the diameter of this? About 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheath is, well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish-white. It's curious. Spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. They're getting in front of my line of vision. Uh, uh, would you mind standing one side, please? While the police are pushing the crowd back. Here's Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm here. He may have some interesting facts to add. Mr. Wilmot. Uh, would you please tell the radio audience as much as you remember of this rather unusual visitor that dropped in your backyard? Uh, step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Wilmot. Well, I was listening to the radio. Uh, closer and louder, please. Pardon me? Uh, louder, please, closer. Yes. <clears throat> I was listening to the radio and kind of drowsing. That professor fellow was talking about Mars, so I was half chosen and half... Yes, yes, Mr. Wilmot, and uh, then what happened? Well, as I was saying, I was listening to the radio... Kind of halfway. Yes, Mr. Wilmot. And then you saw something. Well, not first off. I heard something. And what did you hear? A hissing sound like this. Uh, kind of like a Fourth of July rocket. Yes, then what? I turned my head out the window and would have sworn I was to sleep and dreaming. Yes. I seen a kind of greenish streak and then zingo. Something smacked the ground. Knocked me clear out of my chair. Well, were you frightened, Mr. Wilmot? Well, I ain't quite sure. I reckon I was kind of riled. Well, thank you, Mr. Wilmot. Thank you very much. Yeah, you want me to tell No, that's quite all right. That's plenty. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm, where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene. Hundreds of cars are parked in a field in back of us, and the police are trying to rope off the roadway leading into the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. The car's headlights throw an enormous spotlight on the pit where the object's half buried. 
Now, some of the more daring stories now are venturing near the edge. Yeah, the silhouettes stand out against the metal sheet. <laughs> One man wants to touch the thing. He's having an argument with the policeman. Now, the policeman wins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already on your radio. Listen, please. Do you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll uh, move the microphone nearer. Here. Now, we're not more than 25 feet away. Uh, can you hear it now? Uh, Professor Pearson? Yes, sir. Uh, can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I see. Do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and... You can see it's cylindrical uh, shape. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw in the... Thing must be hollow. He's moving. Keep back there. Keep back there. Keep those men back. Keep back there. Keep those idiots back. Get off. The top's loose. Look out there. Stand back. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I, I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Someone's calling someone or something. I can see turning out of that black hole two luminous disks. The eyes, it might be a face, might be almost... But heavens, something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. Oh, yeah, I can see the thing's body now. It's large. It's large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather, but that face... Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable, but I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is... That's kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seemed to oh, it quiver and pulsate, and the monster or whatever it is can hardly move. It seems weighed down by uh, possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now, and the crowd falls back. They've seen plenty. The most extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen, I can't find words. Well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description so I can take a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll be right back in a minute. bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. We now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, am I on? Ladies and gentlemen, Ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilma's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted and the professor moves around one side studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. 
Those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute, something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Now the whole field's caught up by the woods, the barns, the, the gas tanks, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. It's coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Indelkoffer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We continue now with our piano interlude. Ladies and gentlemen, I've just been handed a message that came in from Grover's Mill by telephone. Just one moment, please. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Grover's Mill. Their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Brigadier General Montgomery Smith, commander of the state militia at Trenton, New Jersey. I have been requested by the governor of New Jersey to place the counties of Mercer and Middlesex as, as far west as Princeton and uh, east to Jamesburg under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by state or military authorities. Four companies of state militia are proceeding from Trenton to Grover's Mill and uh, will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations. Thank you. You have just been listening to General Montgomery Smith commanding the state militia at Trenton. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at Grover's Mill are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back in their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. The combined fire departments of Mercer County are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at Grover's Mill, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you to... Just one moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Grover's Mill where he has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson, brought to you by direct wire. Professor Pearson. Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information, either as to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth. Of their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. 
It's my guess that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. That is my conjecture of the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from Trenton. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in the Trenton Hospital. Now, here's another bulletin from Washington, D.C. The office of the director of the National Red Cross reports 10 units of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the state militia stationed outside of Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Here's a bulletin from State Police, Princeton Junction. The fires at Grover's Mill and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit, and there is no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special statement from Mr. Harry McDonald, Vice President in Charge of Operations. We have received a request from the State Militia of Trenton to place at their disposal our entire broadcasting facilities. In view of the gravity of the situation, and believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the State Militia at Trenton. We take you now to the field headquarters of the State Militia near Grover's Mill, New Jersey. This is Captain Lansing of the Signal Corps attached to the State Militia, now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Grover's Mill. Situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. The cylindrical object, which lies in a pit directly below our position, surrounded on all sides by eight battalions of infantry, without heavy field pieces, but adequately armed with rifles and machine guns. All cause for alarm, if such cause ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. The things, whatever they are, do not even venture to poke their heads above the pit. I can see their hiding place plainly in the glare of the searchlights here. With all their reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy machine gun fire. Anyway, it's an interesting outing for the troops. I can make out their cocky uniforms crossing back and forth in front of the lights. Looks almost like a real war. There appears to be some slight smoke in the woods bordering the Millstone River. Probably fire started by campers. Well, uh... We ought to see some action soon. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust and it'll all be over. Now, wait a minute. I, I see something on top of the cylinder. No, no, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are on the edge of the Wilmot Farm. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. A tub, rather. Well, wait, that wasn't a shadow. It's something moving. Solid metal, kind of a shield-like affair rising up out of the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. What? It's, it's standing on legs actually rearing up on a sort of metal framework. Now it's reaching above the trees and the searchlights are on it. Hold on. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Grover Mills has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns 
pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. The rest strewn over the battle area from Grover's Mill to Plainsboro, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster, or burned to cinders by its heat ray. The monster is now in control of the middle section of New Jersey and has effectively cut the state through its center. Communication lines are down from Pennsylvania to the Atlantic Ocean. Railroad tracks are torn and service from New York to Philadelphia discontinued except routing some of the trains through Allerton and Phoenixville. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reserves are unable to control the mad flight. By morning, the fugitives will have swelled Philadelphia, Camden, and Trenton. It is estimated to twice their normal population. Martial law prevails throughout New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. At this time, we take you to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency. The Secretary of the Interior. Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area. And we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. You have just heard the Secretary of the Interior speaking from Washington. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio here. We're informed that the central portion of New Jersey is blacked out from radio communication due to the effect of the heat ray upon power lines and electrical equipment. Here is a special bullet in New York. Cables have been received from English... French and German scientific bodies offering assistance. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The majority voice the opinion that the enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. There have been several attempts made to locate Professor Pearson of Princeton, who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared he was lost in the recent battle. Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops moving north toward Somerville with population fleeing ahead of them. The heat ray is not in use, although advancing at express train speed, invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making a conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities and countryside. However, they stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. Here is a bulletin from Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Coon hunters have stumbled on a second cylinder similar to the first, embedded in the Great Swamp, 20 miles south of Morristown. Army field pieces are proceeding from Newark to blow up the second invading unit before the cylinder can be opened in the fighting machine rig. They are taking up a position in the foothills of Watchung Mountains. Another, another, another bulletin from Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report enemy machines now three in number, increasing speed northward, kicking over houses and trees in their evident haste to form a conjunction with their allies south of Morristown. 
Machines also sighted by telephone operator east of Middlesex within 10 miles of Plainfield. Here's a bulletin from Winston Field, Long Island. A fleet of army bombers carrying heavy explosives flying north in pursuit of enemy. Scouting planes act as guides. They keep the speeding enemy in sight. Just a moment, please, ladies and gentlemen. We've, uh, we've run special wires to the artillery line and adjacent villages to give you direct reports in the zone of the advancing enemy. First, we take you to the battery of the 22nd Field Artillery, located in the Watching Mountains. Range 32 meters. 32 meters. Direction 39 degrees. 39 degrees. Fire! Forty yards to the right, sir. Shift range, 31 meters. 31 meters. Projection, 37 degrees. 37 degrees. Fire. Hit, sir. Got the tripod of one of them. That's off. The others are trying to repair it. Quick, get the range. Shift, 50, 30 meters. 30 meters. Projection, 27 degrees. 27 degrees. Fire. Can see the fell answer. Letting off a smoke. What is it? Black smoke, sir. Moving this way. Flying close to the ground. Moving fast. Put on gas masks. Get ready to fire. Shift to 24 meters. 24 meters. Projection, 24 degrees. 24 degrees. Fire. There can't be, sir. Smoke's coming nearer. Get the range. <coughs> meters. 23 meters. 23 meters. Protect 22. Army bombing plane V-843 off Bayonne, New Jersey. Lieutenant Bolt, commanding eight bombers, reporting to Commander Fairfax Langham Field. This is Bolt reporting to Commander Fairfax, Langham Field. Enemy tripod machines now in sight. Reinforced by three machines from the Morristown Cylinder. Six altogether. One machine partially crippled. Believed hit by shell from Army gun in Wachung Mountains. Guns now appear silent. A heavy black fog hanging close to the earth of extreme density, nature unknown. No sign of heat ray. Enemy now turns east, crossing Passaic River into the Jersey marshes. Another straddles the Pulaski Skyway. Evident objective is New York City. They're pushing down a high-tension power station. The machines are close together now, and we're ready to attack. Planes circling, ready to strike. A thousand yards, and we'll be over the first. Eight hundred yards. Six hundred. 
400. 200. There they go. The giant arm raised. Green flash. They're spraying us with flame. 2,000 feet. Engines are giving out. No chance to release bombs. Only one thing left. Drop on them, plane and all. We're diving on the first one. Now the engine's gone. Eight... Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. This is Bayonne, New Jersey, calling Langham Field. Come in, please. This is Langham Field. Go ahead. Eight Army bombers in engagement with enemy tripod machines over Jersey Flats. Engines incapacitated by heat ray. All crashed. One enemy machine destroyed. Enemy now discharging heavy black smoke in direction of... This is Newark, New Jersey. Newark, New Jersey. Warning. Poisonous black smoke pouring in from Jersey marshes. Reaches South Street. Gas masks useless. Urge population to move into open spaces. Automobiles use routes 7, 23, 24. Avoid congested areas. Smoke now spreading over, over Raymond Boulevard. UX2L calling CQ, 2X2L calling CQ, 2X2L calling 8X3R. Come in, please. This is 8X3R coming back at 2X2L. Eyes reception. Eyes reception. K, please. Where are you, 8X3R? What's the matter? Where are you? I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building. I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building, New York City. The bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads to the north. Hutchison River Parkway is still kept open for motor traffic. Avoid bridges to Long Island, hopelessly jammed. All communication with Jersey Shore closed ten minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. People are holding service here below us in the cathedral. Now I look down the harbor, all, all manner of boats overloaded with fleeing population pulling out from docks. Streets are all jammed. Noise and crowds like New Year's Eve in city. Wait a minute, the, the enemy is now in sight above the Palisades. Five, five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, wading, wading the Hudson like a man wading through a brook. 
a bulletin is handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside of Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. Seem to be time and space. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He stands watching, looking over the city. Steel cowlish head is even with his skyscrapers. He waits for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running toward the East River, thousands of them dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. A uh, hundred yards away. It's... It's 50 feet. listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the Air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief intermission. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, starring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the Air. set down these notes on paper. I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on earth. I've been hiding in this empty house near Grover's Mill, a small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seems part of another life. A life that has no continuity with the present existence of the lonely derelict who pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of Richard Pearson. I look down at my blackened hand and I 
Try to connect them with a professor who lives at Princeton and who on the night of October 20th glimpsed through his telescope an orange splash of light on a distant planet. My wife, my colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my... my world. Where are they? Did they ever exist? Am I Richard Pearson? What day is it? Do days exist without calendars? Does time pass when there are no human hands left to wind the clocks? Writing down my daily life, I tell myself I shall preserve human history between the dark covers of this little book that was meant to record the movements of the stars. But to write, I must live, and to live, I must eat. Find moldy bread in the kitchen and an orange not too spoiled to swallow. Keep watch at the window. Time to time, I catch sight of a Martian above the black smoke. Smoke still holds the house in its black coil, but at length there's a hissing sound, and suddenly I see a Martian mounted on his machine, spraying the air with a jet of steam as if to dissipate the smoke. I watch in a corner as his huge metal legs nearly brush against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. Morning. Morning. Sun streams in the window. The black cloud of gas is lifted, and the scorched meadows to the north look as though a black snowstorm had passed over them. I venture from the house. I make my way to a road. No traffic. Here and there, a wrecked car, baggage overturned, a blackened skeleton. Push on north. For some reason, I feel safer trailing these monsters than running away from them. And I keep a careful watch. I've seen the Martians feed. Should one of their machines appear over the top of trees, I'm ready to fling myself flat on the earth. Come to a chestnut tree. October. Chestnuts are ripe. Fill my pockets. I must keep alive. Two days I wander in a vague northerly direction through a desolate world. Finally, I notice a living creature. A small red squirrel in a beech tree. I stare at him and wonder. He stares back at me. I believe at that moment the animal and I shared the same emotion. The joy of finding another living being. Push on north, I find dead cows in a brackish field and beyond the charred ruins of a dairy in a silo. Main standing guard over the wasteland like a lighthouse. Deserted by the sea. Stride the silo, purchase a weathercock. The arrow points north. North. Next day, I come to a city. City vaguely familiar in its contours, yet its buildings strangely dwarfed and leveled off as if, as if a giant had sliced off its highest towers with a capricious sweep of his hand. Reached the outskirts, I found Newark. Newark, undemolished but humbled by some whim of the advancing Martians. Presently, with an odd feeling of being watched, I caught sight of something crouching in a doorway. I made a step towards it. 
rose up and became a man. A man armed with a large knife. Stop! Where do you come from? Oh, I come from... from many places. A long time ago from Princeton. Princeton, huh? That's near Grover's Mill. Yes. Grover's Mill. <laughs> There's no food here. This is my country. All this end of town down the river. There's only food for one. Which way are you going? I don't know. I guess I'm looking for people. Hey, what was that? Did we hear something just then? No. Only a bird. A live bird. Yeah. You get to know that birds have shadows these days. Say, hey, we're in the open here. Let's crawl in this doorway here and talk. Have you seen any Martians? No. They're going over to New York. Night, the sky's alive with their lights. Just as if people were still living in it. By daylight, you can't see them. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big across the flats from the airport. I think they're learning how to fly. Fly? Yeah, fly. Hmm. Then it's all over with humanity. Stranger, there's still you and I. Two of us left. They got themselves in solid. They wrecked the greatest country in the world. Those green stars, they're probably falling somewhere every night. They've only lost one machine. There isn't anything to do. We're done. We're licked. Where were you? You're in a uniform. Yeah, what's left of it? I was in the militia. National Guard. <laughs> That's good. There wasn't any war. Any more than there's war between men and ants. Yes, but we're eatable ants. I found that out. What'll they do to us? I set it all out. Right now, we're caught as we're wanted. A Martian only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. But they won't keep on doing that. They'll begin catching us systematic-like, keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. They haven't begun on us yet. Not begun? Not begun. All that's happened so far is because we don't have sense enough to keep quiet. Bothering them with guns and such stuff and losing our heads and rushing off in crowds. Now, instead of our... Rushing around blind, we got to fix ourselves up. Fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. Cities, nations, civilization, progress. Yes, but if that's so, what is there to live for? Well, there won't be any more concerts for a million years or so and no nice little dinners at restaurants. If it's amusement you're after, I guess the game's up. What is there left? Life, that's what. I want to live. Yeah, and so do you. We're not going to be exterminated. And I don't mean to be caught either. Tamed and fattened and bred like an ox. What are you going to do? I'm going on. Right under their feet. I got a plan. We men as men, we're finished. We don't know enough. We got to learn plenty before we got a chance. And we've got to live and keep free what we learn, see? I've thought it all out, see? Well, tell me the rest. Well, it isn't all of us that are made for wild beasts. That's what it got it. That, that's what it got to be. That's why I watched you. Watched you. All those little office workers that used to live in these houses, they'd be no good. They haven't any stuff in them. 
run. Run off to work. I've seen hundreds of them running to catch their commuters train in the morning. Afraid they'd get canned if they didn't. Running back at night. Afraid they wouldn't be in time for dinner. Lives insured and a little invested in case of accidents. Yeah, and on Sundays. Worried about the hereafter. Well, the Martians, they'll be a godsend for those guys. Nice roomy cages. Good food. Careful breeding. No worries. Yeah, after a week or so of chasing around the fields on empty stomachs, they'll come and be glad to be caught. You've thought it all out, haven't you? Sure, you bet I have. That isn't all. These Martians are going to make pets of some of them. Train them to do tricks. Who knows, get sentimental over the pet boy who grew up and had to be killed. Yeah, and some maybe. They'll train to hunt us. Oh, no, it's impossible. Human yes, beings. they will. There's men who do it gladly. If one of them ever comes after me, by... In the meantime, you and I and others like us, where are we to live when the Martians own the Earth? I got it all figured out. We'll live underground. I've been thinking about the sewers. Under New York, there are miles and miles of them. The main ones, they're big enough for anybody. Then there's cellars, vaults. Underground storerooms, railway tunnels, subways. You begin to see, huh? We'll get a bunch of strong men together. No weaklings. That rubbish, out. As you meant me to go. All right. Give you a chance, didn't I? Won't quarrel about that. Go on. Well, we got to make safe places for us to stay in, see? Get all the books we can. Science books. That's where men like you come in, see? We raid the museums. We'll even spy on the Martians. May not be so much we have to learn before... Listen. Just imagine this. Four or five of their own fighting machines suddenly start off. Heat rays right and left. Not a Martian in them. Not a Martian in them, see? But men. Men who've learned the way how. May even be in our time. Gee... Imagine having one of them lovely things with its heat ray wide and free. We'd turn it on Martians. We'd turn it on men. We'd bring everybody down on their knees. That's your plan. Yeah. You. Me. A few more of us. We'd own the world. I see. Hey. Hey, what's the matter? Where are you going? Not to your world. Bye, stranger. Well, after parting with the artilleryman, I came at last to the Holland Tunnel, entered that silent tube, anxious to know the fate of the great city on the other side of the Hudson. Cautiously, I came out of the tunnel and made my way up Canal Street. Reached 14th Street, and there again were black powder and several bodies and an evil, ominous smell from the gratings of the cellars of some of the houses I... Wandered up through the 30s and 40s. Stood alone on Times Square. Caught sight of a lean dog running down 7th Avenue with a piece of dark brown meat in his jaws and a pack of starving mongrels at his heels. Made a wide circle around me as though he feared I might prove a fresh competitor. Walked up Broadway in the direction of that... that strange powder, past silent shop windows displaying their mute wares to empty sidewalks. Past the Capitol Theater, silent, 
dark. Past a shooting gallery where a row of empty guns faced an arrested line of wooden ducks near Columbus Circle. I noticed models of 1939 motor cars in the showrooms facing empty streets. Over the top of the General Motors building, I watched a flock of black birds circling in the sky. Hurried on. Suddenly, I caught sight of the hood of a Martian machine standing somewhere in Central Park, gleaming in the late afternoon sun. An insane idea. I, I, I rushed recklessly across Columbus Circle and into the park. I, I climbed a small hill above the pond at 60th Street, and from there I could see, standing in a silent row along the mall, 19 of those great metal titans, their cowls empty, their steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides. I looked in vain for the monsters that inhabit those machines. Suddenly, my eyes were attracted to the immense flock of black birds that hovered directly below me. They circled to the ground. And there before my eyes, stark and silent, lay the Martians with the hungry birds pecking and tearing brown shreds of flesh from their dead bodies. Later, when their bodies were examined in laboratories, it was found that they were killed by the putrefactive and diseased bacteria against which their systems were unprepared. Slain, after all, man's defenses had failed by the humblest thing that God, as wisdom, has put upon this earth. Before the cylinder fell, there was a general persuasion that through all the deep of space, no life existed beyond the petty surface of our minute sphere, now we see further, dim and wonderful is the vision I've conjured up in my mind of life spreading slowly from this little seedbed of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastnesses of sidereal space, but a remote dream, maybe. Maybe that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve to them and not to us. The future ordained, perhaps. Ah, strange it now seems to sit in my peaceful study at Princeton, writing down this last chapter of the record, begun at a deserted farm in Grover's Mill. Strange to watch children playing in the streets. Strange to see young people strolling on the green where the new spring grass heals the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch the sightseers enter the museum where the dissembled parts of a Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange when I recall the time when I first saw it. Bright and clean-cut, hard and silent under the dawn of that last great day. <laughs> This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen, out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. 
Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. <laughs> Tonight, the Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations coast to coast has brought you The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, the 17th in its weekly series of dramatic broadcasts featuring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air. Next week, we present a dramatization of three famous short stories. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.